Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. As you've hopefully worked out by now, we are big proponents of the need for diverse representation in speculative fiction. And while we are certainly seeing more queer relationships portrayed in the genres we love, there's still a long way to go. But what about speculative fiction romance in particular? Romance is a genre very entrenched in tropes and gender roles. So how do writers employ these tropes in new and exciting ways? And how much change is acceptable to create a narrative that is still recognizably romance while embracing marginalized identities? In this episode, we are thrilled to welcome Foz Meadows, who is no stranger to writing LGBTQ characters into their novels, nor a stranger to this show, being one of the first authors I ever interviewed for Breaking the Glass Slipper. Foz's latest novel, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, puts queer romance front and centre, making them the perfect guest for this topic. Foz, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello, uh, I'm Foz Meadows, uh, at this time primarily known for yelling on the internet, but also for queer fiction. Uh, And it's, yeah, very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So let's just just kick it off by saying, you know, what do you say to the assertion that romance is a genre exclusively written for and by women? Uh, Nonsense. I mean, the thing is, when when I say it's nonsense, obviously if you're thinking about something like heterosexual, harlequin, um, Mills and Boone, classic traditional paperback romance, then yes, that very specific presentation of romance as a genre and I'm making here a very important distinction between romance as genre and romance as device which I don't think gets made often enough but I think is is really salient to these conversations and yes if you say look the long history of paperback romance publishing has overwhelmingly been geared towards straight women um cis women and has been written by those by the same sort of audience then yes that is a correct statement but in terms of um, where the genre where the genre is going now, and how romance is deployed in other genres um, as device, or where you merge those two and you say this is a fantasy romance, or this is a sci-fi romance, or this is a horror romance, um, then no, I don't think that you can that you can make that claim. And I'm not saying that you, the podcast, is making that claim. I'm, I'm addressing the the assertion more broadly. Um, but I think it's really fascinating the way that we div- divide up historically. Uh, we divide romance as genre from romance as, as device because almost every genre has romance as device within it to some degree. And when we think of, like, for instance, action movies, which you would take to be, like, the most masculine, the most um, male-dominated, for men, by men kind of genre – look at almost any classic action movie and there will be a thread of admittedly heterosexual but nonetheless romance through it. And yet 
And those movies are meant for men and they are largely written by men, even though, you know, most pretty much anybody can enjoy them. But that's the desired audience. But if you looked at a movie like that and said, oh, you know, that's an action movie, it's it's for guys, you wouldn't it, it seems really it's a really neat little bit of mental trickery that we do to convince ourselves and indeed the culture at large that the fact that there's a romance in it isn't important somehow, even though it is. It is like a dyed-in-the-wool convention of action movies that the guy gets the girl. And we can have a separate conversation about whether or not those movies are necessarily good representations of romance or if all of them are or you know, the tropes that they use, and that's a wider conversation about tropes. But you can't deny that it's there and that it's kind of integral to, like, the most masculine genre to have that elements of romance within it. So it's only really when we when we make romance this very specific, separate, paperback, Mills and Boone, swoony, big-bosomed heroine with equally big-bosomed man shirtless on, the, on a pirate ship on the cover that we go, oh, yes, that is just for women and by women and nobody else – and we just kind of ignore how central romance is to literally every other type of storytelling in order to, to sort of section it out and say, well, it only really counts as, as romance if, it's, if it is just women. It becomes kind of tautological when actually culturally we are obsessed with it in all formats uh, and always have been. Oh, God, I'm so, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's exactly the same case with something like epic fantasy, where I see this all the time in Let's Not Name Names, but that Facebook group where it's like, oh, you know, I, I'm looking for a novel. I've been put off by, you know, women writing YA fantasy. It's all romance, romance, romance. I want, you know, something really serious. And it's like, well, hang on a second. Whoa, whoa, back up. You know, people are saying, oh, you know, read Brandon Sanderson, read Patrick Rothfuss, read the Wheel of Time series. All of these series have romance in it and, you know, in a big way. So I really think it's it's so interesting that you've talked about saying, you know, romance is device, romance is genre as in its own separate category, because that it, it, this is true. You know, there, there are, I mean, fuck's sake, you know, Rand in Wheel of Time has three fucking wives, effectively. So, I mean, like, take that <laughs> element out of Wheel of Time and they'll be like, the men will be like, well, where are the women's? Well, this is the thing, though. This is one of the things that I find so paradoxical and so funny about um, sort of heterosexual romance, particularly as it gets presented in books or genres or, or contexts that are otherwise considered to be very masculine. And it's just there is this kind of latent, I don't want to say homophobia exactly, but fear of the homoerotic. And like the classic example of a, of a narrative that, that leans into this in a certain way is the original Top Gun, which I had not actually seen until very recently. Um, but the, you know, the classic like beach volleyball scene is like one of the gayest scenes in, in, in cinema. It just is very homoerotic. Um, if you take out, I can't remember the character names, Tom Cruise's romance with what's her name, the whole movie is exquisitely homoerotic as any same sex environment will inherently become. And there, I think part of the reason that there is this tension a lot of the time with acknowledging the romantic, um, aspect of stuff that is otherwise considered to be overtly masculine is it's like this fear of on the one hand the feminine and on the other hand the homoerotic 
leaves the narrative and, and people who have that fear sandwiched between a rock and a hard place, very much of their own making, because it's like, no, we can't acknowledge the romance because that's girly and, and you girl cooties and effeminate, but also we can't just have it be really, really butch because then it might be gay. So we've got to walk this line where the, the romance is there just to let you know that the hero is very heterosexual. But at the same time, it's, well, it can be certainly a badly written romance or it can be just, you know, insert woman here. But it's not always that. There's often a lot more to it than that. But that's the kind of pretense that has to exist a lot of the time. And it's it's really it's really fascinating, especially when you get into the, into the kind of sort of toxic um, sort of heteropatriarchal thing of it's so like femininity being so bad and anything associated with femininity so bad that liking it or, or allowing it somehow circles back around to being gay again. <laughs> it's just like, oh, pretty gay to like a heterosexual romance in your action movie. And it, it the, the logical contortions that certain people and, and groups go through to make something, <laughs> to be able to say that something very heterosexual is in fact gay because that's simultaneously an insult and and a function. I don't even know. It's just, it's bizarre. I have to say that even though I had my microphone muted for audio purposes, I've been chuckling along to that. I think that's going to be one of my best summaries I've ever heard of Top Gun. And I think insert woman here is definitely <laughs> going to be a phrase I'm going to, to use. Um, but I was interested when you were saying about um, romance as a genre and as a device. And I totally get what you're saying, that you find romance in everything. And as an editor, I'm always sort of, you know, saying to people, oh, I've written a romance, they've written a romance. I'm like, well, you haven't. You've kind of written this, but it's got romance in it. And I find the same with mystery as well, that, you know, it might be a kid's book, but it's also a mystery book. It might be a vampire book, but it's also a mystery book because it's so intertwined. So it made me wonder, what do you classify your book as then? Is it fantasy romance is it romantic fantasy? Is it fantasy with a romantic device? Is it romance with a fantasy device? How would you sum it up, do you reckon? Okay, so speaking personally, and I don't think there's necessarily a right answer here, but speaking personally, um, I've been calling it like a queer fantasy romance. And as when we talk about, as I've said, the distinction between romance as a genre versus device, I do think that's that's not – that's the Venn diagram of overlap there is significant and a lot of your mileage may vary in terms of how you, you separate out those things. For me personally, what makes something more structurally, shall we say, a romance is the extent to which uh, the narrative rests on uh, the understanding between, you know, the romance between the characters and their internalities around um the romantic situation that they're in and the relationship to that other character. And that can be complicated or very, very simple depending on the characters, depending on the context. Because if you have two characters, for instance, who are caught up in wider political goings on and the politics are deeply influencing their relationship to each other and they are engaging along political lines as well as personal and emotional and romantic ones, then you could look at that and say, well, you know, that's that's a political story that has a romance in it or it's a romantic story that has politics in it. But not everyone will draw those 
distinctions and say which one is foremost in in quite the same way. Um, and I like that, but I think we also often, there's this tendency because romance exists as a genre, as a concept of it, as like a thing with its own conventions, there's a lot of muddle, muddled conversation. I feel a lot of the time that gets had around whether something is a romance or, but we don't often just make that distinction between whether something is structurally a romance versus has a romance in it or has a romantic subplot. Um, I mean, we do make those distinctions, but I think there's a lot of times we could benefit from making the distinction that it doesn't necessarily get made. So for me, a strange and stubborn endurance, I think is a, is a uh, romantic fantasy or a fantasy romance because the relationship between Velison and Kethari is structurally and narratively central. Like if you, if you took it out, the rest of the story would kind of collapse. It's a load bearing romance. Let's put it that way. Um, whereas you can have romances and stories that are, you know, they emotionally flesh out what is going on. But if you removed that element, um, it wouldn't be load bearing. The rest of the story could carry on. It would just be minus that particular aspect of um, emotional depth um, or significance between the characters, but the rest of the story would still carry on. Do you think that there are different tropes associated with romance as a device versus as a genre, or are they, is it just down to the structure? Because it's when I think about romance as a genre, I tend to think about a lot more, maybe this is my own prejudice, but I tend to think about a lot more kind of stereotyped tropes, which I suppose tropes are stereotypes, but you know what I mean? <laughs> um, then I do necessarily <laughs> for like a romance subplot or like, you know, part of the, the device within a, in a greater story. I think it kind of, it depends because what it's really saying, if you're making the distinction between like a trope and a cliche, functionally they're kind of this, like it's the same sort of thing. It is a familiar shape that, that, a, that an aspect of the story can take. But one of them is, you know, in brackets affectionate and the other is in brackets derogatory. And really that depends. That's not so much a function of whether it's a romance as genre or romance as device. It's how the particular story is is being written and with what depth or occasionally with what skill and to what ends. And I say this because sometimes, you know, and I'm going to re return to the movie example, not everything has to be like an indie art house, uh, deeply soulful classic. Sometimes we do want the popcorn munching, uh, shallow, but very, very fun and colorful big blockbuster action movie. The fact that something is of necessity and of, you know, by design, simple and pleasing and familiar doesn't necessarily make it bad. The thing that really clarified a lot of my thoughts for me, and I've said this elsewhere about uh, sort of tropes and cliches and all of those kind of things is fan fiction in particular. Like once I started to get into fan fiction, reading it and writing it, the fact that it has the tropes listed, like if you go to archive of our own, if you go to AO3 and you read a fanfic and it'll say, here are the tropes that are included in this fic. And, you know, writer can include as many or as few of those as they, as they want in the summary. But seeing it laid out like that when I started to, to sort of engage with it was really, really clarifying for me because it, it gives you this idea of, oh, yes, we know what this is and we're leaning into it. Because prior to that, my understanding of tropes had largely come from the website TV Tropes, which if you're just looking at that in isolation and you're not actively having conversations about sort of tropes and narrative structure, it is possible to come away with the idea that trope equals bad, that you have to do something wholly original and wholly new in your writing, or it's 
not valid or not important somehow or not good. It's just kind of derivative. Everything is derivative, though. Like the human experience is derivative because it's finite. There's, it is simultaneously finite and infinite. We can have infinite permutations of finite things. And that's kind of what tropes are. And so, but when you're looking at tropes and going, oh, there's a list of this trope, this trope, this trope, you're sitting there going, oh, I should avoid all of those. But you can't. You, you literally can't. That's kind of the point. It's the real question is how intentionally are you using the tropes? How familiar are you with the tropes? And to, in what way are you trying to do them? Are you trying to play them straight? Are you trying to subvert them? In what combination are you using them? And then you go to fiction, uh, to fan fiction, and it's sort of like looking at the code in a certain way behind, you know, it's, it, it's like seeing the matrix to an extent. You sort of go, ah, yes, this is enemies to friends to lovers. This is mutual pining. This is uh, awkward fake dating. And you see the trope and somebody saying, yes, I know that's a trope. I love it. I want more of it. Um, and then you go, oh, right. I'm actually allowed to enjoy these things. I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time I write a book in order to be the specialist, most original person ever. I can just say, no, I like this particular thing. I like it for these reasons. And I want to do it in this way. So I don't, to answer the question, I don't think it's like romance's device versus romance's genre. I don't think that's, that's the split that determines how the tropes or how the characterization goes. I just think it's the individual story. Okay. Let's bring the focus back onto to queer romance because I feel like queer romance is still pretty new, um, especially in terms of speculative fiction and being brought in. Do you think there are like different kinds of tropes for queer romance than there are for heterosexual romances? No, I don't, I'm not yet, or yes and no. Like, so firstly, the idea that queer romance is new, I feel the need to clarify uh, it's new in terms of uh, the modern publishing scene, giving yes. it money and giving it yeah. any degree of prestige. <laughs> but if we look at like, you know, the history of humankind, it, it goes back very, very far. It has always been there because we have always it been It is Republic. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So it's not, you know, queerness itself is not new, but I think a lot of the tropes that exist in romance, yes, have come from heterosexual romance, particularly because for a lot of us, that's what we grew up with because it was the only thing that we could grow up with. It's just, you know, heterosexuality, heteronormativity being all encompassing. It's, you know, things are changing now and it's lovely to see, you know, kids growing up with a completely different set of narrative expectations around and cultural expectations and social expectations around romance and people and queerness. That's really delightful. Um, but for a lot of us who are adults now, that was not the case. So necessarily we grew up with heterosexual tropes, but I don't think the tropes themselves are inherently heterosexual. It's just, it's human dynamics basically. We're used to them being done certain ways, but to take, you know, the example that I've used in um, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, which is uh, arranged marriage, that's something, you know, has been, still is in many parts of the world. A, uh, and when I say many parts of the world, I include America. It's, it, that's just like parts of the world, meaning wherever in the world. We're not saying just one part of the world, like that country over there. No, because it's something that happens in a particular kind of religious or cultural or, um, just familial context. And, you know, it can be very distressing or it can be very normative. It can be both. 
sometimes. Um, but because of that, because it has this long history within, you know, all of humanity of saying we, we arrange marriages for this reason or that reason, um, it has also become a trope that we play with narratively. Overwhelmingly, the history of the trope is heterosexual because overwhelmingly that is what the history of marriage has been um, in the world. But there's no reason why you can't take that trope and apply it to to women or to men or to people who are non-binary or whatever. Um, because what you're, what you're really looking at when you do that is you're saying, what is the specific cultural context in which this is happening? What does it mean emotionally to these two people? And how do those two things interact and reconcile? And that's really interesting. And it's not, that's not a uniquely heterosexual phenomenon. That's just a, a human thing. It's just that we're used to seeing it done in only one way. And I think that something that can be really enlightening when we do queer versions of tropes um, that we have, you know, historically thought of as just a straight people thing because that's how we've seen it presented most often, um, it actually leads to more investigation of them a lot of the time. And... I'm, I'm struggling to articulate this, but when I was growing up, I had a really kind of fraught relationship with romance because I didn't really know how to talk about it, how to, how to articulate it. I knew I really liked the romances that I saw in Shakespeare and in Jane Austen, but I did, I really, really hated a lot of the time Hollywood rom-coms and the way that romance was presented in them. And so that led me to think, well, I must just like old books and hate romance. But that's not it. It's the way certain tropes are executed and the thoughtfulness that is put into them or the lack of thoughtfulness that is put into them. And when you're looking at, say, the romance in Pride and Prejudice, to take the classic Jane Austen example, everything that happens in that book is exquisitely informed by the cultural context in which it was written. Whereas a lot of Hollywood rom-coms are not interested in understanding or investigating the cultural context in which they are writing. It's just straight, literal straightness, just man, woman, we're not going to talk about sexism. We're not going to acknowledge the pressures that, that exist in the world of these characters. We're just going to do things and see where they're going. We're not going to analyze them. Whereas even when you disagree with something that happens in Austin and you go, oh, that's a bit shady that 30 something year old man ends up with the 15 year old girl, um, as per sense and sensibility. You, <laughs> and that's kind of celebrated at the end of the book. Even when as a modern reader, you kind of go, ah, I'm not kind of okay with that. Um, you understand the context in which she was writing and you understand all of the social and cultural and, and you know, other, other localization factors that have gone into the construction of that, um, of that narrative and that romance and those characters. Whereas I think a lot of modern Hollywood rom-coms have been particularly and notably incurious about the social context in which they're operating. Uh, and that to me has always been their failing. I, I like that idea. You know, it's funny because I never actually really thought of Austen as a, a romance writer. Uh, I always thought of her as a social commentary writer. But that's the thing, but romance and social commentary are kind of the same thing in the same way that everything is political to a certain extent. No trope is an island. No genre is an island. Everything is kind of influenced by everything else. So, yes, Austin is, Austin is 
intimately about social commentary and social convention. Romance is part of the social convention and the social commentary. You can't, you can't disentangle them. But as we were talking about with like romance as genre versus romance as device, depending on when you look at it, you can shift what you think is the most important um, element. You can say is the social commentary load bearing or is the romance load bearing and decide which is the, which to you is the most central pivotal point of the book. I just wanted to respond and say I really like your idea of this this load bearing concept, um, and also as Jane Austen is sort of romance and social commentary kind of being weaved together. I, I find very much the same with Pratchett that you've got someone who writes fantasy but also social commentary, and you can't both of them are equally load bearing. And the same with Jane Austen, you can't take one from the other and I think it those kind of books are the ones that last where you manage to weave two genres together and not necessarily have one with a device but both so completely encapsulating the whole novel yeah and I mean the thing with Pratchett is that when he started out writing Discworld he was just doing comic fantasy he was looking at what are the tropes of the genre and can I poke fun at them a bit but in the process of doing that he went beyond the superficial and he said, well, okay, if an orc is always a bad guy or a troll is always a bad guy or a goblin is always a bad guy, why? What are the cultural and social underpinnings of that trope? Why is this not a person? And that becomes like this huge central thesis of the disc world is that what is a person? What does it mean to be a person? And what does it mean to abuse a person? And everything kind of comes out from that as saying, if you've got these groups that historically have not been considered people in fantasy they're just the ravening hordes in the background and they're just the bad guys what does it mean to create a system that makes them people if you take this trope of dwarves always being male what does it mean to investigate that in terms of actual gender so you end up with trans dwarves you end up with um this whole different idea of gender as applies to dwarf society and you say, okay, so if it, if it looks like this on the surface and we just kind of accept that, what is the logic of it underneath and how does it then apply? And that, I think, is the, the beauty of Pratchett, is that he was just very passionately convinced about human. Like, when I say humanity, I don't just mean the human race. I mean the idea of personhood. What makes somebody a person? What makes them fit into a culture and a context? What makes them valuable? And the corollary of that, what, where does evil in the world start? And his great line with that is treating people as things. I think that was a Granny Weatherwax line in one of the books, that all evil in the world stems from treating people as things, and that's where it starts. Um, and it's that is social commentary. And then he would apply that to trolls and goblins and dwarves and vampires. Um, and it was... It's such a loss that he's that he's gone from the world, but yeah, I, those books are really special. Since we have you here and we're literally having this discussion, I just wanted to kind of um, get your opinion on something that I I think is very interesting. And actually, like Meg touched on it, you know, in the questions she, she sent through, MM romance does tend to be written by women for 
a female audience consumption. And the thing that is is standing out at me is that I've read a lot of Chinese web novels recently in the last <laughs> two years. You know, like in the wake of The Untamed, um, yep. you know, MXDX, uh, there's, a, you know, Priest, there's a lot of uh, writers out there. Obviously, they're beginning to be published over, you know, over here in, in the English, you know, an official English language translation for the first time. So we've got a lot of people um, picking up these books by word of mouth. Um, but, you know, as someone who's who's read quite a lot of them and sees the same tropes appearing again and again, and, you know, not, not a problem. It's not a problem for me. I do love them. Um, but does that impact the, the kind of diverse representation aspect of this, that the fact that I am overly aware that I am being catered for um, by other women who see these beautiful men in a, a very particular way and um, we, we kind of keep seeing it again and again and I'm kind of like what's that doing to that particular kind of representation? Okay so this is a really complex and interesting question. I think to take specifically the example of uh, like Dan May Chinese uh, BL content um, and we're talking about diversity the fact that it is Chinese particularly when you're looking at that from a, from a western context we go yes that's diversity whereas when you're within China, the fact that it's Chinese is just, is not, that's not an element of diversity. The queerness is. Um, so I think you need to acknowledge that we need to acknowledge that part of what makes something diverse is the position from where you stand and the position from where you're viewing it. Um, but also if we're looking at a cultural context where it is very, very difficult for anybody to come out, um, so my understanding of, of homosexuality in China, very, very patchy, very, very incomplete. Uh, I wouldn't presume to speak authoritatively on the matter. Um, my understanding, my nebulous understanding is you can come out. You are also likely to sort of suffer for it and that there are immensely fraught complications in terms of the authors of said Dan May content, content uh, with regard to censorship, possible legal complications, uh, the need for anonymity. So I don't think that it's, uh, given that context, talking about the authors of, of Dan May works as though they are necessarily uh, all straight women. Um, I don't think that that's, that's helpful because you don't know. <laughs> you, you genuinely don't. Um, that's a persona that's been put forward Um it could be completely true or it could be somebody who is in the closet or it could be a completely fictitious uh, pen name. That's the word I'm after. It could be a pen name and a pen identity. But I think that this concept of assuming, I think really also applies in a, in a Western, in a, in a Western context when we're looking at authors of MM works and a problem that we encounter is there is there, okay so is there a problem or is is there a phenomenon of straight cis women writing very fetishistic uh, mm stories? Yes, that is something that happens. Is that the majority? I don't think so. But more to the point, is is there a danger in then saying, well, if we're skeptical about this one group writing stories of this nature? What then happens when you treat that scepticism as a yardstick for determining whether somebody is or is not allowed to write about a particular topic? Um, 
What we then get is something like what happened to Becky Albertelli, where she was forced to come out as bi, essentially, because she received so much harassment around the idea of being a straight cis woman writing a, a, a famous queer story. Um, and there have been other instances in, in SFF where authors have felt the pressure to come out in whatever way to justify, um, even though that doesn't, it shouldn't need to be justified, in order to satisfy uh, a demand that is being made of them is to say, why are you writing this? Why are you allowed to write this? You shouldn't be allowed to write this. And I think it's important to note that this is also something that has happened to people who have written about sexual assault uh, or about uh, child abuse, where authors have been interrogated and said, you sh this is exploitative. Unless this has happened to you, you shouldn't be able to write about it, which has put this onus on victims to then come forward and talk very personally about what has happened to them and say, well, actually, yes, I am a victim of this. Nobody should have to disclose that. You shouldn't have to disclose deeply personal, often very traumatic and hurtful aspects of your identity, or even just come out before you're ready. And those two things can be synonymous. They don't have to be, but they can be. Um, in order to explain why you have written a particular thing. Now, one area in which I feel that this gets, I don't want to use the word complicated, but something that it gets danced around a bit, because there are cis gay men who are writers who have said it's really disgusting that women, that straight cis women or even just bisexual women or, les you know, queer women who are cis write about MM romance and who have further said in some instances, it's really discussed like, cause you end up with transphobia saying, Oh, non-binary isn't a real thing. Gender queer isn't a real thing. Um, trans men aren't men. These people would say, and this is just kind of appropriate of you writing about this experience that isn't yours. Now, obviously as somebody who is sort of gender queer, trans, non-binary, whatever label you want to apply to me, I am. Um, this is really, uh, distressing and also frustrating. But it leads to this position where on the one hand, you've got people talking about, oh, you know, it's only straight cis women who shouldn't, who shouldn't write MM. And then you've got people saying, well, you know, bisexual women, women shouldn't write about that either, particularly if they're in straight relationships. And it's like, okay, I am AFAB, married to a man. I would consider myself bisexual. Does that apply to me, even though I'm not cis, not, not whatever you want to, you know? And then people, oh, you know, it's it's okay if you're if you're trans or or genderqueer, but not if you're. And you just people start putting these these labels on it, and you start to feel this immense amount of of doubt and guilt and anger around the idea that this is the rubric that is being used to determine whether or not you can write about something, as opposed to whether or not that writing is good. And. It, it is really hurtful at times and it is really difficult because it's like if I say, oh, I've considered going on tea, oh, I've considered getting top surgery, does that suddenly make my writing about male characters in love more legitimate in the eyes of some people? It doesn't change the life experiences I've had up until this point. But you say, oh, but you've crossed some sort of threshold. Like if you're out as a trans man, then that's different to being non-binary, which is different to being in the closet. It's just this this whole thing of who is allowed to write and who is not. Um, I actually, I've got this quote that I that I set aside for this particular question. 
So I was on TikTok the other day, as you do, and I stumbled upon uh, an account by somebody called arguably Samaya, who said something that I thought was specifically about uh, sort of toxicity in queer communities online. And well, not even just online, but just toxicity in queer communities. And the specific quote that she said was, we always define communities as people that share our experiences and not people that are working towards a similar goal. And that will only ever lead to exclusionary, reactionary communities. And I think that that was a, that was a really eye-opening and important point for me to see made by somebody. Because, yes, exactly. Like, if you look at the history of uh, sort of queer liberation and queer struggle, and you look at alliances made in, in the early days of those communities in like, and I'm, when I'm talking about the, that context, obviously I'm talking about like the modern world, but it is, you know, we are making alliances with kinksters and, and drag and everything is where you, it's, it might not be, Oh, this might be like a straight cis man who does drag, but that's somebody who is joining us in this, you know, struggle for recognition and in the idea of community as opposed to, somebody who's sitting there reaping the benefits of whatever other privileges they have actively kicking down at, at anyone else in the community who is sort of less privileged or whom they see as excluding. And I think some of that has to be applied to, to sort of like a queer literary community to, within SFF as well. This idea of what are, what are we trying to achieve here? It should be less about have we all experienced exactly the same thing? What, what, what wounds do we have to share in order to be able to write a thing? Um, what specific commonalities do we have in what we've been through? Because a lot of the time it presupposes that there is um, some kind of homogenous queer experience and there's not because there's not a homogenous queer person. Like, yes, we can make jokes with in the community like, yes, I am wearing my bisexual flannel today or you know, all gays can't drive. And we can make those jokes because we're the ones making them. And it's, I don't know, I just, I get, I get endlessly frustrated by debates within the community about MM being written by women or for women as like a primary drive. And it's like, okay, yeah, we can, we can have a conversation about why that's happening. We can also have a talk about why women might be doing that in the first place and how that relates to sexism and desire and the policing of female desire and the policing of female bodies and how sometimes it can be easier to relate to an object to two objects of desire rather than to your own body. Like it is a problem with uh, that a lot of women have when they're meant to objectify themselves over and over and over again, that you kind of dissociate at times during sort of sexual experiences, this is a real thing because you're thinking constantly about how your body looks to, the, to your partner, how it looks to the other person. So in your sexual fantasies, there can be a, a kind of immense relief in, in abstracting from that and saying, no, I don't have to imagine a woman. I don't have to imagine myself. I can imagine two men instead. And then people go, oh, but, you know, what if it was the other way around? What if it was a man writing about lesbians? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't we feel that was weird and predatory? And it's like, again, firstly, a lot of we don't like to talk about this at the moment, but there can be a lot of hostility towards just queer masculinity or any kind of masculinity in any kind of space that is viewed as inherently predatory. And we don't like to think that we're doing that because it's, uh, apart from anything else, gross to men of colour, it's gross to trans men, it's gross to queer men, it's gross to sort of like, even like the idea of, of 
butch lesbians being predatory towards femme women because that idea of evil masculinity somehow tainting everything it touches. I did read a Tumblr post about this like yesterday or today, and I, I feel I might be paraphrasing them and I don't want to claim credit for that insight when it wasn't mine, but it resonated a lot with what I've been thinking. But at the same time, we do have great SFF authors who are men writing amazing queer female characters. And so I feel like this gets brought up as a, and, and as a gotcha sort of like, but aha, what if the evil men were writing sexy lesbians? How would you feel then? And it's like, well, there are great lesbian characters being written by men and people are just kind of rolling with it. We're not having this parallel conversation because we can see that they're good characters. Yet somehow on this end of things, it's being viewed as fetishization inherently. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm just tired. You guys, I'm just, I'm just so tired. We've got multiple governments trying to pass all of this, like, hateful legislation to take us back to 1792 spiritually and we've got community infighting about whether trans people should exist and who is allowed to write fictional stories about men kissing and i'm just i'm so tired there's a fantastically wide-ranging answer and i think you raised some really interesting stuff especially about women and you know and how they see themselves or how they don't want to see themselves during sexual encounters i think that is a very interesting link to this narrative around female obsession or enjoyment of well actually you're right fetishized mm romances yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to keep using the word fetishized because I don't think that that is what it is in anywhere near a majority of cases. It's it's an accusation that gets brought up. Um, but it's also, this is another argument that I get into over and over again and that comes up often with, like, the idea that, that content, particularly queer content, has to be, like, morally pure in a certain way, that it can't be complex or dark or... Uh, have characters who are morally grey or who are bad to each other and still be compelling. And you get this a lot in certain fandom circles with people eating each other basically over the idea that, oh, your ship is toxic, your ship is problematic. Oh, my God, you had two 16-year-olds kiss. That must mean you're a pedophile because you're 25. And just this absolutely nonsensical, very Puritan approach to storytelling and it drives me kind of insane, <laughs> actually. And so when we talk about, like, all of the reasons that people have for enjoying something and, and liking something or resonating with something or finding it compelling, which I think is a really important distinction to make, you can find something compelling without thinking it is morally good or desirable in the world, in the real world whatsoever. But it's this idea that there is only one reason why somebody could want to read a particular thing. It's the reductiveness of it that, that kills me. It's like this idea, okay, if you're a straight cis uh, woman and you read MM, then you must be fetishizing it. There can't be any other explanation for why you'd read that. And it's the same argument you get with like purity culture worming its way into fandom discourse when you're like, oh, you're reading about like fucked up BDSM without any proper consent negotiated beforehand. The only reason you must want to read that or write that is because you're like a freak or a pervert. And it's like, again, no. <laughs> Again, with the with the reductive view of, of humanity and our interest in art and our interest in people and the inability to separate uh, fiction from reality and the idea of 
if you are compelled by something, then you must desire it in the real world or condone it in the world. Or if you depict something, you must desire it in the real world or condone it in the real world. And no, that's not a get out of jail free card to say, therefore, we never have to think about the consequences of art. We never have to think about the cultural implications of art or how we came to write it in the first place or why we're doing it. No, we still need that introspection and those conversations because they're important and they talk about what is going on with wider society and how art influences that and is influenced by it in turn. But at the same time, oh my fucking God, there is more than one reason to like or engage with or enjoy a thing. Yeah, as someone, I mean, I have been in a lot of therapy and I find that I come back to again and again this stuff of like, people telling me what I should and shouldn't like or should and shouldn't do, should and shouldn't be. And I feel like part of my whole life is like railing against that. And yet at the same time, I just get frustrated when people use that as an argument for spouting hate. Yeah, it it's horrible and soul-sucking so let's talk about something a little bit more fun. In your book, you've got like a society that forbids homosexuality, you know, and isn't welcoming, and then one that does embrace it, you know, and, and why did you want to kind of have those both kinds of societies and, and what kind of went into the, the building of, of creating more of a, almost a utopian idea of it versus something more representative of unfortunately the bullshit that we have in real life (laughs) because the contrast is what's real life because in the real world we will have our queer communities and we will have our queer found families and we will have places in the world that are safe and welcoming and then we will have places that are not and that might be five miles down the road or it might be the place where we grew up or it might be the country that we moved to or the country that we moved from but that that duality and that uncertainty of knowing that, yes, I'm safe in this one place, but not in this other, or if I'm not safe here, does that mean I'm not safe anywhere? Or if I'm safe here, does that mean I could be safe everywhere? That's that's what, to me, like that's how, that's how it is to exist as a queer person in the world. You have that knowledge. And so I've, I've read a lot of stories, um, both historical and fantasy and sci-fi, that are queer norm um, settings where it's just yes here are our queer characters and everything is unquestioned and this is fine and beautiful and then you have those same sorts of stories where somebody is fighting against homophobia or a homophobic society and I I find those harder to read but they can be they can be really uplifting and, and powerful in certain ways for me but I hadn't seen as many that had that contrast of moving from one space to the other that tends to be the the provenance of queer stories set in the real world where you have to negotiate between what your family thinks or what your school thinks or what your county thinks or what your country thinks or what your religion thinks. Um, And you have to negotiate between those spaces. And I wanted to try and do something similar in in a fantasy context. Um, And I'm finding it really interesting looking at people's like early reactions to the book, how, so that the country where, Vellison, who starts out in Raleigh, Raleigh is homophobic. Um, and it's, it's sort of sexist, homophobic, transphobic. And it's the country that the culture that is, you know, in as much as we see it in the books, is kind of loosely derived from England, basically, <laughs> like, uh, you know, or Europe. Like, it's that familiar fantasy setting of 
kings and queens and the lords and ladies. And we know that when we look at that example in our history books, we know that it was likewise sexist, transphobic, homophobic. Um, so I'm not that particular narrative apple of deliberately hasn't fallen very far from the tree. And Villison comes to Tithina, which is the, the queer normative sort of setting over the mountains where it's still a monarchy. There are still aristocrats, um, but you can be out here and you can be trans and you can be non-binary. And uh, also it's not sexist. Women can, can hold rank and, and have power as well. And the number of reviews I've seen of people saying, you know, I like the book or I didn't like the book, but I thought it was really black and white in terms of how the cultures were presented because one was all bad and one was all good. I've been really fascinated with people saying that because that's not what was in my head when I was writing it. But you've got this, like Bellison is a gay man who's come from a society that is horrific to him on, and he's had to live closeted and he's been basically kicked out as a result of this, um, going to a society that is welcoming him. And the idea that he should be thinking fondly about the country that he's come from or that I should be not necessarily softening that country but saying, oh, yeah, but it does these other things well. I was like, that's not really the headspace he's in during <laughs> this portion of the novel. I don't know, that, that, but that idea that, oh, because one, is, one society is familiarly based on European, this is what we're used to seeing in so many fantasy novels, he's like – overtly has those characteristics. Therefore, it is terrible and bad and evil and I'm presenting it. It's completely irredeemable. I'm not really, like I'm passing moral judgment on the idea that being homophobic and sexist is bad because it is, but I'm not saying anything else particularly about that society. And I find it interesting what people are taking this to mean that, oh, one society is great and good and perfect. And it's like, guys, it's still a monarchy. <laughs> it's still a monarchy. It's still got legal loopholes that the, that the aristocrats get to use that the other characters don't. Um, that's, that's a plot point in it. I won't say how and why, because spoilers, but that's a plot point in the book. Here is a legal recourse that you only have because you're a nobleman. Um, that's not great. I'm not really, I'm not really trying to say one society is, is magically wonderful and perfect, but obviously, you know, death of the author, people can read into it what they want, but I've been really interested by those by those comments about it because it's um <laughs> it's like I, I i don't feel the need to talk up the, the homophobic sexist country to kind of like quote unquote balance the fact that it's homophobic and sexist i i feel like and again this is probably you know the way that i'm thinking about things or the, the way that i'm going into reading them but i feel like there's a tendency to kind of fit things into two different groups where you have like the typical romance in the sense that there's lots of hardship and things to overcome, but in the end they get the happy ending. But, and more so when it's a sort of a side character or a romance is part of like the subplot or as a device, as you were saying, you get, you still get a lot of queer romances that end in the heartache and end in, or, or at least are about, you know, painful coming out stories. Um, it, it's a lot, at least in my reading, I feel like it's a lot more of the negative, which I completely understand because obviously we're, we're dealing, you know, people are processing what we experience in the day-to-day -day world. But I was wondering, you know, what, 
what place does the the hopeful kind of more open romantic space have for queer narratives? I think we're getting a lot more uh, diversity of expression in that in that sense, and I think it's really great. And we're seeing more and more queer narratives that are getting to come through uh, across like a whole spectrum of, of storytelling. And I think it's really, really wonderful. Like I can't actually keep up with it. There's so many queer books that keep coming out uh, and I keep going, Oh, I want to read that. Oh, I want to read that. Oh, I want to that. And then I don't have any time. Um, but just keeping up with like what's, what is available. I think we are seeing this really wonderful plurality of um, experience and thought and mood coming through. Something that I really struggled with for a while was the idea of uh, queer queer writers writing queer tragedies because, or, you know, queer narratives that can train tragedy in them. Because for so long in the West, you know, the narrative of queerness, the only narratives that you could have were tragedies. And that was like literally codified in terms of the Hayes Code. Uh, you know, you could depict homosexuality on screen provided you were very clear that it had a tragic ending which is why you go through a certain period of, of sort of Western cinema where that, you, where that is the trope. It's because that was what was codified. That was how you could present it. And so there is this really um, fraught relationship with tragedy, but it is also part of the community. And it is, you know, because there have been so many and are so many tragedies within the queer community. But the difference is, is who gets to tell it as opposed to, um, and, and also not just who gets to tell it because that, ties back to that earlier argument. Although, you know, we're saying it is important for queer people to be able to tell their own stories and have their own perspective on events that have happened to them as opposed to having it told by outsiders. But also if you look at like Gothic storytelling, which is inherently kind of spooky and tragic and something like Gideon the ninth saying, Hey, this is just like feral and Gothic and, and tragic and also insanely funny at times. Let's just go balls to the wall with that. Um, and that's, it's amazing that we get something like that. But yeah, just this idea of plurality being important because when you've only got like a tiny slice of representation, every individual aspect of that tends to get overly criticised and bear this immense weight of having to stand for an entire group of people because there's so little of it. Whereas we're getting to a point now where there is so much more queer storytelling being told that it can be twisty and dark and tragic as well as uplifting and, and, um, and happy and light. It can be all of those things. It can contain the correct multitudes, which is multitudes. It can be varied because we're not having to look at it and go, ah, oh, this is the one queer story by which we will judge all queer writers or all queer characters or all presentations of queerness within media. You can go, no, 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 we have, we have a gamut. We have a whole gamut and it's great. And we don't have to, when you have that plurality, one thing doesn't just get held up as the pinnacle of this is, this is representation. You can go, no, look, behold, we can do, we have range. We have the range. And that's, I, I think we are seeing the range now. And, and I hope that it continues very much so because it's wonderful. I mean, that is kind of like our mission statement in a, in a sense of, yeah, we really just want to see diverse books. You know, there is no one queer experience. There's no one hetero experience. There's no one white experience, cis experience, black experience. Like it's just not the case. We want to be able to see the full range of what makes human beings amazing and beautiful and 
just incredible. So yeah, and it's it's really wonderful to see more and more queer romances, especially given today's topic. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're really happy that they're out there. Anyway, thank you so much, Foz. It's probably time to wrap up. We could talk to you forever because um, you are amazing. <laughs> and uh, best of luck with Strange and Stubborn Endurance because it's, it's fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.